to see if you cut it off right at the simple case, then the simple frameworks are going to look really awesome because they don't do anything and there's nothing going on. <laughs> right? Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the JavaScript Jabber podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hi, I'm Jameson Dance. I work as a software developer at ITV in Utah, and we are hiring JavaScript developers. Awesome. We also have AJ O'Neill. <clears throat> Hello there. I work at SpotRF, and we are also hiring JavaScript developers. Ooh, now it's a battle. <laughs> Did you have somebody leave recently? Yeah, Jameson <laughs> made room for us. <laughs> we also have Yehuda Katz. Hey, it's Yehuda. Work on JavaScript at Tilda, and I am back. All right. And I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. And this week we have a special guest, and that is Steven Sanderson from the Knockout JS team. Hey. Yes. Yeah, so I'm Steve. I'm a web developer. I live and work in the UK. And uh, currently I'm working for Microsoft. And I don't work in recruitment, but obviously we are always hiring. <laughs> I work in the team that produces uh, lots of different web technologies, so ASP.NET and uh, various things. So I'm the only one that's not hiring? Oh, I guess Yehuda didn't say that they were hiring either. We are not hiring, unfortunately, at the moment. We're a very small company with limited resources. Right. Yeah, I uh, I can definitely identify with that. I am trying to get hired more. So um, anyway, so this week we're going to be talking about Knockout JS. We actually had quite a few people asking us to talk about it, and uh, we figured... Who better to bring on the show than somebody who actually works on it on a day-to-day -day basis? So, um, Stephen, do you want to just kind of explain the basic concepts that uh, make J Knockout JS work, and then we can tell you or start talking about what we like and what we don't? And yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, to set the scene, Knockout is one of the model view type uh, libraries for JavaScript. So it's a library for building uh, very rich, dynamic user interfaces with uh, a clean architecture behind it. And in Knockout's case, the recommended pattern is model view view model and that's a little different from model view controller or model view presenter which uh, more people are probably familiar with uh, but I can describe what that difference is and what motivates that uh, if you're interested and knockout also uh, on top of the MVVM stuff brings some additional features of its own to do with uh, observability and declarative bindings and uh, things like automatic dependency tracking and we can get into what they are and how they work if you're interested all right cool so model view view model um, if I remember right from our discussion with Addy is basically it felt to me kind of like model view presenter where you have a view model that holds all the data and behavior for the view? Uh, yeah, there's some similarity there. So probably the easiest way to understand that, and I'm just going to completely steal this description from uh, a friend of mine called Rob Eisenberg, who uh, has built a different MVVM framework, uh, is to imagine a scale, uh, like a spectrum, and uh, this is a spectrum of statefulness. So on one extreme end would be model view controller, and that would be the stateless end. Uh, so when I talk about MVC right now, I'm talking about the kind of web flavor of it that you know is familiar from things like uh, Rails or ASP.NET MVC. And in that kind of model, the controller is something that's processing a request, doing some stuff, and then emitting some uh, view markup. And itself is not actually holding any state, because all that state is in the model and some sort of data store somewhere. Okay, so that's one extreme. And then uh, in the middle of the spectrum would be a model view presenter that you just mentioned. And on the far right, or far left, whatever order you want to put them, uh, would be MVVM, which is the, the most stateful of these three kind of uh, patterns. So uh, the difference, well, firstly, 
there's no difference between the model view part of any of these, really. We can sort of forget that. So the difference that you need to think about is between controller, presenter, and view model. So controller, as I just said, uh, the way we think of it on most web technologies is stateless. And uh, the view model is fully stateful. So the view model uh, represents what's happening in your user interface. It represents both the data that's in there and also behaviors that might be on it. So if you've got a button, let's say, that does something, then the logic for what that button does will be in the view model there. And that's holding all its data. It's completely independent from the view. It doesn't even have a reference to the view. And it just gives you a sort of clean model to write code about what happens in the UI. And then the presenter from MVP would be somewhere in between these two. So uh, a presenter probably holds a bit of state of itself to do with what's going on in the view. But most of the state there would be actually kept within the view. So if you've got some sort of rich UI widgeting type system and your view uh, and your presenter is just kind of tweaking values on controls, then that would be MVP as distinguished from MVVM where uh, it's not really about rich widgets and controls. It's more about the view model holding a model of what's going on and then having some kind of framework way of binding that onto the view. So I know that's not stunningly clear, but the, it's a subjective difference really along that scale. Um, would you say that, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, would you say that the view model is similar to uh, the view object itself in Coco? Uh, I would love to give you a good answer to that question, but having never developed any Coco uh, uh, code, I wouldn't know. I can just take a guess based on uh, UI technologies I have worked with. And if in Coco you've got widgets that hold some data, like so you've got a list control that holds uh, data for what items are being shown in that list, then in that case, the uh, that would be in MVVM terms a view. And you'd separately from that have a view model, which represents the fact that there is a list of some data. And then you would have a framework component that binds that view model onto that list control. Uh, so that uh, as a developer, you primarily write operations against the view model and don't have to think about any of the Cocoa widgets because you just know that the framework will update them automatically. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, I think that's probably more like a view controller in Cocoa. Then. Okay. All right. So, um, so one of the things that you talked about was the, um, the data binding. And uh, you said that it's declarative data binding. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so if you uh, think about how HTML looks, obviously you've got a set of tags or angle brackets and bits of text and such like that. And uh, then let's say you've got a text box. So you've got bracket, input, value equals, whatever. Um, the way Knockout does declarative bindings is that it uses a custom attribute called data-bind. So that's the data namespace from HTML5. So it's you know it's okay for us to have these and it's all valid. And then the value inside the data bind attribute is um, a piece of uh, uh, JavaScript, JavaScript object literal, um, but without the sort of curly braces from both ends. And that is something that Knockout can evaluate in order to find out what stuff you want to bind onto that DOM element. So let's say you've got data bind equals text colon some value from my view model, then Knockout will evaluate that and it will find out that you want to bind a particular value from your view model to that text box and it will do so in a bi-directional way. So if you change the value on your view model, then the text box will update and vice versa. The user edits the text box and the view model updates as well. So that's a, probably the most simple and obvious kind of binding. But uh, more sophisticated than that are things like control flow bindings where you can have something like uh, an if binding or a for each binding and that will cause part of your markup to appear or disappear depending on a value in your view model or it will cause repetition in the case of for each. So you can set up uh, something that's very much like templating or gives you all the same powers as uh, normal templating, uh, but just purely expressed in terms of uh, uh, your DOM. Okay. Um, I know that some of the other panelists had a reaction to uh, the way that the binding is declared in the HTML. Um, <laughs> 
it, I don't know. I think it's just from being trained for so long to not put logic in the view, and then it kind of feels like logic in the view. But I, I played with the tutorial a little bit um, last night, and I actually really liked it. It just feels like it almost feels like more of a tooling problem than a design problem because um, I mean, in, in in GUI architectures like Coco, you have these same type of bindings, sort of, and you can do them declaratively. Um, but you you also have interface builder that tech, that takes care of all of it behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, that's so a, are are there any have you guys done anything with tooling to, to kind of uh, help you declare your bindings automatically? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And um, so, yeah, there's two aspects to that. One is, uh, is this a good thing to be doing? And what's the pros and cons? And then the other is, you know, what can we do with tooling for that? So in terms of tooling, uh, Knockout doesn't try to uh, force you down any particular route in terms of IDEs or text editors or server-side technologies or anything like that. So that does provide, unfortunately, a bit of limitation on what can be offered. Um, so I'm not entirely sure you know what the best way of providing any kind of tooling is now there is some talk inside Microsoft of doing some stuff in Visual Studio that can help but I know that's certainly going to help a, you know a certain percentage of uh, web developers because you know Visual Studio is not uh, quite dominating web development at the moment so there are uh, yeah there's an open question about that and the answer is we don't have a, a particular plan so you know that's something that the community could contribute if there's a strong need for it my personal experience is that I don't really feel that the loss of tooling because uh, I tend to feel very clear-minded about my view models and what data is on them and what I can do with that data and it feels quite natural to me to know what you know what stuff I can bind to what other stuff but obviously I appreciate I'm in a, a slightly unusual position of having worked with this for a couple of years now and not being a learner of it. Um, so yeah. what is Microsoft's relation to Knockout? Are, I mean do they just do is it just people that work on Knockout also work at Microsoft or is it sponsored or what? Yeah good question. Uh, I am the only person at Microsoft who's got any sort of uh, special uh, relation with Knockout being that I uh, created it but it is purely an open source project. I created it before I started at Microsoft and it hasn't been sort of you know acquired or anything like that. It's just it's still a community-owned project, MIT licensed on GitHub. Uh, you know, it's agnostic to your server-side technology. Uh, it's equally applicable to, to Rails or anything else as it is to uh, Microsoft technologies. Um, as for Microsoft's interest in it, uh, it does fit very well with uh, ASP.NET MVC and so the MVC team at Microsoft decided that they wanted to ship it as part of MVC. Uh, that wasn't my decision, but uh, I'm completely happy with that. So that's uh, something that happens now. Um, but yeah, Microsoft doesn't own it or control what's going to happen there. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just good to have a bit of, uh, I suppose, support for uh, developing that and uh, exposure to a whole set of developers. Online. Yeah, you get kind of a built-in user base. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I want to jump in here real quick because I'm looking at the example on the website that has the, the ticket class. Oh, yeah. And uh, I have to say one thing I do like about the data bindings is that it's it's pretty clear uh, to me, at least, you know, what, you know, you can look at it and you can see, okay, it binds to this and it does these kinds of things. Um, I have kind of this deep down reaction looking at the, the configuration sort of setup there. It looks sort of like a, a JavaScript object, but, but uh, at the same time, you know, part of me is going, they must be ev evaling that. And that kind of makes me cringe, even though I'm sure you guys are being careful about that. It's just kind of, I, I have a reaction to that, but I do really like that it, it is explicitly stated on the DOM elements, what you're binding it to and, and uh, you know, what they're going to be looking at. I, th I think that's really kind of neat because then yeah. all you have to do is look at the, the HTML code and you know what you're getting. That is precisely the thing. So my, the experience that led to this design was uh, building uh, a fairly large single page application using uh, a technology called reactive extension 
functions for JavaScript, which is a kind of uh, event-based programming model. And uh, I was spending a ton of my time setting up the uh, sort of mappings between uh, different parts of this uh, reactive model and the user interface. And as the requirements for this software were continually evolving, it just formed a, just a, a continuous burden, really, to keep this, these two things up to date and in sync. And by switching to a declarative model, there's uh, the information about what a given DOM element does is exists in exactly one place. You never have to go off to some other place to try and figure out what's going to happen. And if you want to refactor your UI in some way, like move some elements from one place to another, you don't have to think like, is this CSS selector going to still work? Or what other selectors are trying to reference this element or anything like that? You just, you know, the, there's no consideration like that in your head. You just literally move the markup and you're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, some people do prefer having a separate uh, system for uh, defining bindings. And, and that's fine that there is extensibility in Knockout to do that. Uh, I don't personally recommend it, but very often people who are new to Knockout come along and say, hey, I think we should switch to this other way of doing stuff. And we always say, well, great, go off and use the extensibility mechanism. And, but, you know, it's not become particularly popular within the community. Right. Because, so yeah. so what are the trade-offs then between maybe declaratively putting it in the DOM versus, you know, using some other method of binding DOM elements to um, your view model? Well, I suppose the, probably the biggest advantage of not doing the declarative binding, but rather doing it procedurally, um, is that you don't have uh, this thing about not wanting to put logic in your view. Now, you mentioned that before, and uh, and I would completely agree with you that you, you do want to cl- keep a clear separation of concerns there and not put stuff that's like procedural logic inside your HTML, because, you know, that's just really confusing matters. Um, and so with Knockout, the way that you do that is to define properties and computed properties or functions on your view model that encapsulate whatever logic it is that you want, and then you can bind that into your view. But sometimes people don't do that, and they slightly abuse the, the binding system and just put all kinds of junk directly into their bindings. Um, and that's not really something that you want. And so I suppose the advantage of doing it procedurally is that you don't have to make that differentiation. You can just put whatever logic you want into your bindings because it's not really on the view. I think probably part of the reason why that happened was that the old knockout documentation, so right now the knockout documentation is actually a lot better and doesn't do crazy stuff, but the old knockout documentation would do stuff like click colon and then like an inline function. Yeah. So I'm sure some people looked at that and copied it. Yeah, that's a fair point. We, I, I am to blame for that. We should talk about the documentation though. It's it's amazing. They have I, all kinds of interactive tutorials and I, I was really impressed by the docs. Yeah, I'm massively <laughs> jealous of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the tutorial right now. I'm pretty impressed. Right. At least, I mean, I haven't gotten very far so I don't know how in-depth it gets, but at least for a brief introduction, it's it's great. Cool, thank you. Yeah. So, so yeah. how do you find people to do that? To do what? To write documentation? Yeah. Um, well, uh, until probably a year ago, it was just me um, and uh, then I uh, then there was a, a very prolific uh, a participant in the mailing list called Ryan who was just outrageously helpful to everybody and incredibly nice and patient and you know always knew the right answer to everything um, which is just like a dream for someone who creates an open source project so I you know quickly brought him on as a core contributor and now he's involved with me in particularly the sort of education side of the project uh, helping people on the mailing list and writing docs and things like that and we do have another core contributor who came on recently as well but he is uh, he's mainly the sort of more of a code wizard kind of guy and so he doesn't he, he did write some docs even just yesterday but um, yeah, that's not his focus so much um, and then occasionally when people send us pull requests if they're incredibly uh, good pull requests they will come with uh, updates to the docs as well and so that's that's always nice when that happens so did you make a dedicated decision to say we're going to have interactive docs um, or, or did that just kind of evolve because I think that's really cool oh, that, that kind of happened because um, early last year I spoke at uh, an event with uh, well within Microsoft it was reasonably high profile so it's quite a, a cool thing for me to, to get to, to present to all these people 
alongside uh, some other well-known speakers. And so I, I spent a fair bit of time uh, before that preparing some really uh, snappy demos that would be very impressive. And after I'd done all that, I felt, oh, I've got these such these great demos now, but I've got no way of, you know, kind of using them again now I've done this talk. How can I somehow put that on the web? Can I just put a video of me doing these demos? Yeah, I could. That would be kind of cool. But what would be even cooler would be if people could do the demos themselves and they could step through bit by bit and have the same experience. Um, and so from that, you know, emerged this idea of having interactive coding exercises. Um, and it, it only took a couple of weeks to build the site. Obviously, it is built with Knockout. And it was quite a nice experience for me, actually, because although I created Knockout, I uh, did not have uh, any uh, active projects at that time that were using it uh, because, I, you know, I was just working on some other stuff. And so it was quite nice to have a, some to be writing some real code that was using Knockout. Well, it turned out great. Thank you. Yeah, it looks yeah. really nice, the interactive tutorial. Yeah, I, we try. We tried to, um, so Ember tried to copy it. Or <laughs> I guess we were going to do a few things differently, but it actually turns out to be pretty tricky um, to do well. Uh, there's just a lot of little details, and we, I think we'll probably eventually have something good, yeah. but but it's, I think, I would agree that it would probably take a few weeks of dedicated work to get it done, and we just never had that, but yeah. but, uh, maybe, but it's really awesome. Maybe you could use Knockout to power your Ember docs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was our problem, but... <laughs> <laughs> One benefit that uh, these particular examples have is that they don't really involve the server, or they only in a very, very sort of superficial way, and that makes it so much easier to code something like this. Right. If it had to involve, you know, the, the user writing server-side code that we then have to evaluate on the server, that would be that would not be fun. So, what what uh, backend technologies have you are you aware that people are using behind Knockout to provide it with data? Uh, well, there's there's a, certainly a bias towards the uh, Microsoft stacks because of my uh, background and the fact that I've uh, got a lot of involvement in the Microsoft communities. Um, so uh, within those, ASP.NET NVC would uh, dominate by quite a long way. Um, but besides that, I'm aware of people using pretty much everything else I've heard of. Certainly uh, things like Rails uh, is quite uh, common and popular. I'm aware that increasingly people are uh, having node backends with kind of, uh, you know, RESTful services, and then uh, they've got their client-side code that's just effectively static uh, files served by their server talking to the uh, REST services. So that's, that's getting quite popular. Um, also, interestingly, probably the most interesting thing for me at the moment is the um, backend-as-a-service type thing. So, you know, things like PARS and StackMob uh, that are providing uh, the, the RESTful backend that's just about rich enough that you can then write pure JavaScript and HTML uh, that will talk to this backend and uh, produce you know, a very nice rich app without having to get into all the sort of database management stuff. So that's really cool. But also, you know, anything else you've heard of, there's probably enough people using it now um, that you know, somebody out there is, is doing it. One nice one that I should, um, well, a couple that I'll point out actually. Uh, there's a plugin that uh, a guy in the community created called uh, Knockout Live, and that allows you to connect Knockout View models with uh, models that exist within a node server. And it uh, uses uh, WebSockets or some other transport to uh, continually synchronize what's happening on the client with what's happening on the server. So you can have uh, multiple clients uh, connected to the same server that are uh, collaboratively editing some data. And you know it's quite cute that you can see that as one uh, browser window is uh, making some edits on a data, they're continually showing up in the other browser window and vice versa. So that's really nice. And I just had an email the other day from um, someone who's created uh, knockout support for the Meteor uh, web development framework, which has been in the, the news lately. It's been a bit of a hot thing. Um, so that's a, a sort of potential next generation kind of framework that uh, doesn't differentiate between server and client. So you write the same code and it sort of migrates between server and client, uh, which is really interesting. All right. Plus, there are all kinds of weird puns you could get into with Knockout Meteor. Yeah, definitely. <laughs>
So I'm a little curious, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Yehuda has some input on this too, because um, it, we were talking about it before the show, actually, with the To Do MVC and and how interesting it was that the To Do has kind of become the the default yeah. uh, for demonstrating these frameworks, and you know, it's People it doesn't got lots to do, Chuck. Come on, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, somebody should write yet another to-do app or something. But anyway, um, so I'm a little curious um, because it seemed like both of you kind of said that it wasn't the best way to show off your uh, particular frameworks. Um, What uh, what sort of application would you put up to show off um, what Knockout can really do? Okay, cool, good question. Well, it's a difficult trade-off, isn't it, when you when you're doing something educational between uh, accessibility and um, just awesomeness. And I suppose the two do examples are specifically chosen to be accessible. And you know there there isn't a sophisticated domain that you have to understand. It's just literally editing a list of stuff. Now, there's barely even validation. I don't even know if it has validation. It's that trivial. So you know that that's got its benefit. Um, if you wanted to have the most sort of awe-inspiring app that's built on Knockout, I suppose uh, you would build something, um, I don't know, something like Gmail would be quite a good uh, example because, you know, it's got lots of different lists that you can navigate around. It's got all kinds of sort of search support and um, ability. It's got like config screens that you can navigate between tabs and you can, uh, you've got all the sort of different requirements for validation and asynchronous operations that are going on in the background and so on. So I think uh, a mail client would be a pretty good example. In fact, there, there's a sort of very, very basic uh, email client example on the uh, interactive tutorials, um, but that's just, you know, navigating between a few lists. Um, but yeah, that, that would be a cool one. Um, I'm not sure yeah. what else. We'll, we'll, we'll have Jameson code that up and get it to you next week. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, I, th- I just want to say why I think the to-do example is not so good. I, to-do example was designed basically as a demo of Backbone, and it's a really good fit for Backbone because Backbone is relatively simple in terms of the facilities that provides and the demo simple. And then you go and you take that example and you take something like Ember or Knockout and in fact there is less code in Ember or Knockout obviously or we would not be doing our job. But it also is the case that it's not really showing off any functionality that either of those frameworks has above Backbone because the demo itself was designed for Backbone. So I, that's why I think it's a poor, it's it's a really good demo for simple frameworks that don't provide a lot of facilities and it's a, real, it's a poor demo for showing why frameworks that provide a lot of extra facilities are better. Yeah, agreed. It's okay. also a good demo for frameworks that are specifically designed for doing that demo. Yes. Not <laughs> Isn't that always true, though? You you provide a set of benchmarks, and then everybody designs toward those benchmarks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, we spent some time um, looking at what things about Ember made that demo not great. And I think at some point, we were just like, okay, so we've optimized our... So there were things like, for example, um, I think we both have something like this, like the ability to have computer properties that know about um, a lot of uh, arrays, basically. So like an array changes. Yep. Um, and this is useful, and it provides value. But at some point, like you run out of obvious wins and you could keep optimizing it or you could move on to like actual real apps that people are building. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think one thing that I can say for the to, to do MVC is that if you look at it, you can at least kind of get an idea of how the frameworks work, at least at a basic level. And, uh, you know, some of the, the APIs that are provided by the frameworks. But, yeah, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't fully showcase what it's capable of and what other instances it might be a better fit to use one of these more powerful uh, frameworks. Yeah, I, I think in particular the fact that, so um, Backbone has a very simple data model. It has basically models and views. And if you have more things than that, uh, you end up in a situation with the to-do demo where you have, it's very hard to actually showcase 
to extra things because there's no place to put them. And if yeah. you did use them, it would be like, oh, look, they're over engineering crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So one other thing that I wanted to bring up is that uh, in the demos and stuff that I've looked at so far, I didn't see anything that would that. Uh, took me back to a persistence layer at all. So yeah. uh, how, yes. how does that work? Is there is there just a built-in mechanism that I missed or? No, you didn't miss anything. So uh, Knockout is targeting a specific segment of what as a web developer you have to do. And that particular segment uh, is not including uh, data persistence in Knockout's case. So the idea is to be agnostic to, to what you're doing there. And the reason behind that is that the, uh, the focus for the project has always been, since uh, it was originally created, on building extremely rich uh, UIs, basically. So my own personal background is that I've worked on a bunch of projects that were consumer-facing, as opposed to your sort of intranet-type admin apps. And uh, typically, the, the sort of demand in that is to make things really, really shiny. So everything needs to move around with the right kind of animation and you know things need to appear and disappear and have uh, you know all kinds of like nesting and things like that so that kind of like deep richness in the UI has been the focus and uh, the actual uh, data access aspect of it um, we decided to keep as a separate thing so there are various different plugins for knockout that will provide different kinds of uh, data access mechanisms um, and uh, or if you don't want to use any of those you can just fall back on something truly basic like dollar.ajax but examples of things you can use are the knockout mapping plugin, which knows how to um, take raw data that you might get from the server and sort of upgrade it into a knockout view model or do the reverse. There's the knockout live plugin that I mentioned before, which synchronizes knockout data with uh, stuff that's going on in memory in a node server. There's you know, knockout meteor I mentioned as well, but that's extremely nascent. And one interesting one that I very much doubt that anybody has heard of yet is um, actually from Microsoft, a library called Upshot.js, which is a, um, a sort of a standalone data access mechanism for JavaScript. It knows how to talk to arbitrary REST endpoints to uh, to fetch entities on demand, and it caches those entities in memory so it doesn't have to keep going to the server you know, more often than it should. It understands uh, relations in a very deep way. It comes out of a team that has, has got a background in um, SQL Server, so you know, obviously there's uh, immensely uh, rich kind of relational data modeling type support, so it knows exactly how to deal with, like, you remove stuff from one collection and move it into another collection, and uh, what the server needs to know to update all the foreign keys and things like that. It also does stuff like uh, validation and uh, and then it does change tracking. So as your knockout UI is, is modified or any other type of UI modifies that data, it's um, keeping track of the, the changes you've made and then you can either revert or synchronize those up with the server and it has a protocol for dealing with validation errors that might come back from the server. So you can then um, you know reflect those up in your UI. Uh, but yeah, very few people have heard of Upshot.js yet. Um, but yeah, that's just as one kind of layering that you could use. Okay. I'm trying to make someone else ask a question. <laughs> I want to ask a question. We kind of uh -huh. talked about this already, but I think it'd be important to go to. So I mentioned um, how it feels weird to put stuff that feels like logic in the view. And yeah. Yehuda in the chat was saying that for um, front-end interactive apps, that's not actually as bad of an idea as it is for server-side stuff. Um, so yeah. I, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Why, yeah, why yeah. is it not apply as much? Well, I would have to give a kind of balanced answer to that, which would be I, I still wouldn't recommend putting a ton of logic in your view. So even though Knockout has uh, a dynamic binding mechanism that, that will allow arbitrary logic, like there's no nothing to stop you, um, it's still going to get potentially overwhelming and repetitious if you um, have bits 
piece of business logic inside your views that you then copy and pasting around between different views with no reasonable kind of reuse. Um, I, I still wouldn't really recommend that just because of the, the loss of the separation of concerns, the loss of reuse. Um, but to some extent, simple logic, like let's say um, I want to display something if there are more than four items in a list. Well, you know, maybe the number four is something that you really need to factor out into like a constant or something like that. But simply having the logic of show this if it's more than that number is probably completely reasonable to put inside your view because it is, it is a view concern. It is this part of the view logically should be shown if this particular uh, condition is met. So I think that's okay. But it, it still remains up to the developer to, to choose what level of logic they're comfortable with. And if a developer says, you know, I don't want to have the if X is greater than Y logic in my view, then the knockout solution to that would be to have a computed property that is a you know Boolean property and it returns true or false based on whether or not a given thing should be shown based on you know that comparison. And then you bind that to your view instead of the, the comparison. I think I think it's important to remember that before unobtrusive JavaScript, there was on click equals function, and that was it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. when people were evangelizing uh, unobtrusive JavaScript, they were doing that because they were like, this is craziness. You have a giant HTML file that just has only logic in it. Please get this logic out. And in, in addition to that, you had cases where, for example, you had a nav bar with like 10 links in it, and people were doing things like on click equals on each link. And it was like, this is clearly wrong. You should move this logic out, yeah. right? But I think there, are, when you're looking at a JavaScript MVC framework, there's a more, as you said, a more nuanced position because you have a lot more tools for factoring out logic. So you can, it is actually, so in Ember, for example, we actually just made the decision for you. You cannot put arbitrary snippets of JavaScript. You have to move the Boolean into a into the view object. But you, but it still is sensible to be able to say in your um, in your HT, in your markup, like, hey, only show this section if this Boolean is true. And you and you you still get the benefit of if that's part of a larger reusable component, you still get the benefit of having that Boolean be factored out. But basically, the for me anyway, the idea that you it has to be 100%. You have to take all of your logic and go. Let me find this thing by selector and say that if it's here, do this, and then let me bind to this thing and then go show it or hide it when you can actually just have it be declarative. For me, feels like overkill. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I do like the idea that you're pointing out to where you know don't use the anonymous functions if you can you know abstract the the logic somewhere else. Does does knockout actually allow you to put anonymous functions in your data dash bind? It's not going to stop you, but you, everybody would just sort of throw up at you if you know if they saw you doing it. Kittens we will die. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean it's it's a sort of. You know, all programming systems have got things you can do that you don't want to really do. Um, and it's just a case of th these bindings can be arbitrary, and so we let them be arbitrary because it's up to the developer to be mature. I know in, in the Ember case, you'd have just explained there's a, there's a system for stopping that from happening, and that's a completely reasonable perspective too. In Knockout, we, we just happen to make the other call of saying, yeah. well, we'll leave, we'll leave it up to the developer. But but really, the basic result is that you shouldn't be putting inline function literals. To be honest, uh, I don't... Sorry, I'm sorry. Go I was going to say, uh, to be honest, I don't actually care. Uh, I just cared before that it was in the documentation. Yeah, yeah. I think it should, it should, there were a handful of cases in the knockout docs in version one where we did have an inline function literal just because it was, you know, it reduced the amount of code by three lines or something like that. And for people who this is the first five minutes that they've ever even looked at knockout, you're trying to reduce it to the absolute minimum number of concepts. And that, that was the way it went in version one. But yeah, there had been so much feedback that that was the wrong move that we totally changed that. Right. This so, is sharp. Be like careful it. how you use it. I'm a little confused. Uh, um, as to what, so uh, originally when I think it was Jameson said something about something here is supposed to be analogous to an on-click handler, right? 
I, I don't see anything here that looks analogous to an on-click handler to me. Uh, you, you use data bind and it looks like you parse the value that you put out of there. But uh, I don't know. That doesn't look too terrible to me. It looks clean. Uh, it's yeah. it's not it's not like you know you've got on-click function and then a 50-line function in there yeah. or anything. Yeah, no. no, it's yeah. just setting up logic. If you use a click handler, you'll say button data bind click colon and then like save or revert or some function that's on your view model. And that's it. That's the full extent of, of what you've done. And, and conceptually you have just associated that DOM element with some functionality on your view model. That, that's all it is. It is. It is literally a binding. It's binding two things together as opposed to being the place where your logic goes. So one other thing that I see here that is a little bit concerning with the data dash bind is that you could conceivably have several options that you're defining in data dash bind or yeah, yeah. data dash bind. And so how do you keep, keep that neatly organized? I mean, I can see here that you kind of put a new line between each of the um, options. Is that generally a good way to go? Or, I mean, what if you have like 15 or 16 different options on there? Are you doing something wrong? Or You probably are. I've never seen a situation where someone's had 15 different bindings on a single DOM element. So even the example on the homepage that you, that you mentioned there, which has got one binding that's four separate components to it, that's pretty much an extreme case. And it's kind of a weird quirk that that's ended up on the homepage. And I probably have never seen a case with more than something like four bindings on a single DOM element. Because the bindings are pretty high-level things, you know. Like the options binding pretty much, you know, is, is doing a lot. It's saying, I want to keep the contents of this element in sync with this other array. And, and you know, it, it's doing a lot of things in, in just a few characters there. So having to combine a lot of them together would be extremely abnormal. Right. So I guess another question that I have looking at this example, for, for those of you who uh, are trying to follow along, if you go to knockoutjs.com, um, I'm looking at the source code in the example. Um, the other thing I noticed is that, you know, you do have options, colon, tickets, and that binds it then to the tickets array in the uh, tickets view model that uh, you, you've bound to this, um, this element up here. Um, I guess my question is, then why don't you go ahead and initialize the options inside of the select tag? Um, I'm not sure I quite follow you. What do you mean by initialize the options? So, so why don't why don't you just have option tags inside of the select tag? You will As typically in, not have that information. Like you will typically be getting that information from the server or something like that. Okay, that makes sense. I'll, right, I'll buy so that. A, a different way you could do this, I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, is that you could have a select tag that doesn't have any options binding on it. And then inside there, you could have a for each binding. And inside there, you could have an I think what he was getting at is he was thinking about the progressive enhancement approach and he was thinking, why does the server not just put the options in there as the starting data? Oh, is that okay? Is that the case? Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, typically with a, a single page application, you are uh, probably just serving something like HTML that's not really even been processed in any significant way by the server um, and which is fantastic for performance because, you know, you just serve it straight out of Nginx or, or whatever with just with basically no server code running around it. it it's fully cacheable. It goes onto CDMs without any sort of consideration for user-specific state or anything like that. So, you know, phenomenal speed of getting the stuff into the browser. And then from there, the browser is going to do all the hard work of, of taking the raw data and um, binding all that onto the, the DOM and, you know, producing a kind of running application. So basically what you're saying is that you provide sort of a, a layout that, you, that you're binding your your data to and then um, because of all of that, the only, the only assets that are dynamic are 
the ones where you're going to the server and retrieving the data. Otherwise, yeah. you're serving static assets, which is really, really fast. Yeah, that's not the only way to do it, but it's a, a very um, you know beneficial one. And, and it's really nice for the sort of conceptual simplicity of it. As in, you've probably got some uh, designers who are working in a larger team. You've got some designers who are producing these static HTML files. And then all the developers having to do is just sprinkle a little bit of data behind attributes on that. And then you've got some separate back-end developers who are producing you know super performant RESTful services. Um, and then all of this stuff sort of composes together nicely into a finished application. That makes a lot of sense. Really like that approach. All right. Well, we're getting pretty close to picks. Does anyone else have any uh, questions or thoughts or comments? Well, can I, can I just point out a few of the things that I think are probably distinctive about Knockout as compared with other um, comparable things? And this is not as some sort of attempt to argue that you need to use Knockout as opposed to other things. It's, you know, it doesn't matter to me very much. But just in case people are, are interested in you know, what, what this is as compared with everything else, probably the, the things I think are distinctive about it are the, um, the DOM-based templating approach. So um, although you can use string-based template engines with Knockout, that's not the default. And uh, most people will just uh, literally use their DOM as it is uh, with control flow bindings to define um, the structure of UI that wants to come out of there. So that's got pros and cons, but you know it's a distinctive, and that's all I'm trying to say about it. Um, and probably the other thing about it is the um, extremely opinionated approach to observability that you have in Knockout um, where um, observables are a kind of a first class thing in themselves it's not just that you've got entities that whose properties are observable it's that the, the properties themselves are things that are observable so you can compose um, arbitrary shaped data out of observability and even nest observable so you can have a, an observable that returns a set of things which are themselves observable which themselves have got observable subcomponents and so on and so uh, if you've got that bound to your UI then whichever part of that object graph changes will always update exactly the right part of the UI. You know, we never have to re-render any part of the UI that wasn't affected by a given change. And in terms of uh, inferring the relations among that object graph, this is all fully automatic. So you don't have to say, you know, I've got this computed property that's composed out of these other pieces of data. That's just figured out at runtime automatically. So you might have some um, dynamic logic that, that uses, uh, you know, whatever business rules you've got to compose one property out of a set of others. Maybe it's iterating over some structure and then depending on the values going off to some other data and depending on those values going off to some other data or whatever and Knockout will figure out from that what the structure of dependencies is among your graph. So again, whenever anything changes just the minimal set of um, consequences are recomputed and then the minimal set of changes happen to your view. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it is. It's, uh, when I first, when this sort of first came together I was very excited about the sort of mathematical elements of it. It does have some drawbacks as well I should be fair, which is that when newcomers are not familiar with what's happening they sometimes don't quite appreciate the sort of power of that system and try to do things in other ways. And then they can get confused because they're sort of manually trying to track dependencies, which is just something that the framework should be doing. And, and if people don't let the framework do it and try to do it themselves, they, they have a hard time over it. But yeah, it, is, it does work out very nicely. Cool. Anything anyone else wants to add? All right. Well, then we'll go ahead and get into the picks. Um, I don't know if I actually warned you about picks, did I? I've, I've heard this podcast before. I'm familiar with the picks. Okay, good deal. So we'll go ahead and get started. We'll have uh, Jameson go first. All right. My mic is not muted this week. My first pick is a Twitter account called WWWTXT. Uh, so WWWText, basically. And it's this guy's art project where he takes um, text from the early internet from the 80s to the, the mid-90s mm -hmm. and just posts it up on Twitter. And it's really interesting just to see how different people's attitudes are towards the internet and also kind of how, how similar they are. It's, it's just really cool. Little historical nuggets. I like it a lot. Um, and then my other pick is a, uh, 
It's a book called Wool. It's by this, um, I don't know that he's like a famous author, so he just publishes it himself as ebooks. But it's it's really great post apocalyptic sci fi, which is one of my favorite genres. Um, wool, so W O O L. I don't say L's very well. <laughs> um, Welcome to Utah. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, he sells. So there's five of them. He sells them all together for like five bucks as an ebook. Um, and and I mean they're full length books, so it's a lot of content and it's it's really good. So those are my picks, just two. Cool, AJ. What are your picks? My microphone was muted. Oh man. And. Uh, <clears throat> Utah Open Source Conference. I was there this week, all three days. There was a lot of good talks, uh, interesting stuff to learn, great networking with people, um, making some new friends, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'll give a shout out to that. And also, if you look for UTOSC 2012 on YouTube, there's about 20 videos that are already uploaded from it. You can see AJ and I and Chuck. We all presented there, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And actually, let's see. Jameson, I got yours on here and Chuck I think I got yours on here yeah you no, I don't me, actually told me that you oh okay I'll do no, it. You, you posted a link to it I saw it oh I just didn't put your your names just not showing up when I did the control F to find it because the text was too long that's why uh-huh. yeah and then the talk I did on arm on is on here but the other one it wasn't actually recording oh, that's too bad all right any other picks I uh, sure yeah um I've got a couple. Uh, I just warn you, they're slightly pretentious, so you might think I'm better than that. Well, I don't know what you think, but anyway. Um, well, the first one's not too bad. Are you so, going to pick yourself? The first one is actually a, a, a cooking book, a recipe book that I've uh, been using recently, which is fantastic. It's called The the New Best Recipe. Uh, it's by Cooks Illustrated. And um, the thing I love about it is that for every single recipe in the book, they have tried about 30 or 40 other recipes, like 30 different ways of making, you know, Know, triple chocolate cookies or something and then they've scientifically done taste tests on all of them and produced what they think is the best possible recipe by combining all of these things so uh, I think it's great and, and when you read it they tell you like if you want the cookies to be slightly softer you need to use a little more oil because this has causes the protein to expand or, or something like that they give you all the chemistry behind it which oh so it's like for engineers yeah exactly it's cooking for <laughs> really cool. obsessive engineers um, there's actually a talk at uh, Utah Open Source Conference that was that cooking oh, wow. for engineers Oh, fantastic. I would have loved that. Okay, and then the other one, this is super pretentious, but um, a book called The Conscious Mind, which is um, a philosophical book uh, that was uh, really influential in the mid-90s. And uh, it's a guy called David Chalmers who uh, describes what he calls the hard problem of philosophy of the mind, which is how uh, physical things can be truly conscious. And he, he describes a system, um, and he he's not saying it's true, but you know, it's, a, it's something that has moved a lot of philosophers on from a kind of physical, physics-based understanding of reality to uh, various different kinds of dualistic understandings in the last 15 years or so. And I, I found that really interesting. Cool. Yehuda, do you have some picks? Uh, just one. Um, and I think it's possible that I was already reading this when I was on last, but I don't know. Um, I'm reading a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined by Steven Pinker. And it's basically um, evidence that, in fact, while we all think violence has been going up, 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 it's actually been going rather rapidly down. Um, all kinds of violence, wars, torture, etc. Um, and it's it's a pretty long book with a lot of numbers and um, anthropological information. But I found it interesting just because it, it seems unassailable in terms of the facts. And it seems very contrary to the common perception that people have. So, so we're just more hyped 
hypersensitive or hyper aware of the violence that is occurring. It's, yeah, the the, pre- the idea behind the book is that uh, he actually goes through like many many pages talking about like describing torture, and he says, "You see how you're squeamish about that? Uh, turns out that like 500 years ago, people did that in the public square, so we have just gotten more sensitive to this. And um, in particular, we're just we are less tolerant of violence. Therefore, the little amount of violence that that remains makes us a lot more uncomfortable. Therefore, we pay more attention to it and, and think it's a big deal. Right, that makes sense. Yep. All right. Well, I've got a couple of picks. Um, Jameson neglected his duty to give us something to listen to. <clears throat> and uh, when I was at uh, RailsConf, uh, David Brady turned on some music and it's uh, it's called Pickin' On. And it's actually bluegrass music. But before you uh, turn off the podcast, um, they actually do covers of famous rock music. So they have a Pickin' On U2, which is stupendous. It's amazing. Um, they, I also got picking on Three Doors Down because people kept asking me if the intro to Ruby Rogues was Kryptonite by Three Doors Down, and it's not. Um, but anyway, I just I, I just totally love what I got so far. So um, I may wind up picking up more music off of iTunes. But um, anyway, uh, they're they're great albums. Really, really enjoy them. And uh, I think that's all I've got this week. Oh, I've been reading, getting things done, but I think I've picked it before. So. Um, yeah, so that's it. We'll, we'll go ahead and wrap the show up. Uh, thanks for coming again, Stephen. Thank you. It's been fun. Really uh, enjoyed it. I look forward to listening to more episodes of this podcast in coming weeks and months. All right, cool. If you're wondering where the episode from last week was, um, we had a little bit of a recording snafu and so, uh, it is not available. We are going to be re-recording it next week. So, um, just keep an ear out for that and, um, we'll, we'll catch you all next week. Bye-bye. Adios. Thanks. Goodbye.